beliefs are basically the guiding principles in life that provide direction and meaning in life. Beliefs are the present, organized filters to our perceptions of the world, external and internal. Beliefs are like internal commands to the brain as to how to represent what is happening when we congruently believe something to be true. In the absence of beliefs or inability to tap into them, people feel disempowered. Beliefs originate from what we hear and keep on hearing from others ever since we were children and even before that. The sources of beliefs include environment, events, knowledge, past experiences, visualization, etc. One of the biggest misconceptions people often harbor is that belief is a static intellectual concept. Nothing could be farther from true. Beliefs are a choice. We have the power to choose our beliefs. Our beliefs become our reality. The Biochemistry of Belief by T.S. Satyanrayana and others in the Indian Journal of Psychiatry. Welcome to Delmarva today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. This is the first in a three-part hour-long Delmarva Today series on belief produced by Delmarva Public Media. This morning, we're talking about what belief is, how our beliefs are developed, and the role they play in our decision-making. My guests for this first program are Dr. Adam Wood, department head and professor of English at Valdosta State University. Dr. Grant Wilson, professor and graduate program director in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Massachusetts. And Dr. Christine A. James, professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies, also at Valdosta State University. In the spirit of full disclosure, Grant Wilson is my son. The second program in the series on belief will consider the question of how beliefs change and the last program will look at the current nature of our beliefs in fields such as politics, religion, and culture. Adam, Christine, and Grant, welcome to Delmarva today. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. Great to be here. Adam, let me begin with you. What are beliefs and how are they developed? And Christine and Grant, uh, join in and, and feel free to push back and ask questions of each other as well. Adam? Well, I was hoping to get some pushback on this. So I wanted to start with a, a quote from Frederick Nietzsche, uh, who says that belief means not wanting to know what is true. 
another translation is faith uh, means not wanting to know what's true. Uh, and I think, you know, for Nietzsche in that sort of sense, he's really sort of trying to suggest that uh, beliefs are something that are not fundamentally grounded in reality. So even if we think about uh, etymologically speaking in terms of the English language, the earliest definitions that we see of belief very much do have to do uh, with religion and faith. So uh, an early definition uh, from, I believe it was uh, 1062, uh, is the trust, the trust that, believe, that the believer places in God, the virtue of faith. Uh, the more recent one is the mental action, condition, or habit of trusting to or having confidence in a person or thing, right? So we still have this almost religious sense of, of blindly trusting in something. Um, in a broader sense, though, and, and, and I think Christine could certainly probably speak to this much more than I could in terms of philosophy, uh, belief is sort of a basic or ultimate principle or presupposition of knowledge, uh, something innately believed, a primary intuition, uh, what's sort of known as a, a priori, right? A thing that we that we believe and trust in before the fact, and then kind of build uh, the rest of a belief system around. I think that you're Sorry, right. I, yeah. No, no. I think that's a great introduction to the question, Adam. The way that Nietzsche is describing belief and the idea of it not being founded really makes a lot of sense for philosophers. We usually try to look at things in terms of like historical influences, and in that moment, Nietzsche is definitely responding to Plato and the idea in the ancient Greek world that there's a distinction between doxa, which is mere opinion, and episteme, which is real knowledge. So everybody's got lots of doxa. Everybody's got lots of beliefs. But when it comes to the idea of trying to actually make those beliefs into knowledge, that's where we always run into trouble. And so I think that you're definitely on the right track there. It's the kind of thing where, at least for the ancient Greeks, they thought that they could figure out episteme by doing justified true beliefs. How you justify your beliefs and how you say that they're true, that's that's a problem. That's something that people disagree about. And the thing that's so funny between Plato and then Nietzsche is that you have the Middle Ages in which having some kind of religious belief supposedly led you to real knowledge. If you had the right belief, then God was going to give you the natural light of reason. And we still kind of hold on to this medieval idea in certain contexts. Is that the kind of thing that you see in your work in psychology, Grant? Oh, I'm actually in astronomy. Astronomy, but, yes. Yeah, but, but I, I actually think this is great because I could fold all of science into what the, the Nietzsche quote that Adam gave. Um, you know, we, um, I, I have trouble with the idea of the truth because I think we're all building our own frameworks of reality and our own models of reality, all the way down to fundamental physics and, and everything in between. Um, and uh, yet the physicist or the scientist holds on to the idea of the, the axiom, axiom uh, that the scientific method will, will build a consistent model of reality. And yet there's no guarantee that that's true. I mean, we're, we're completely limited by what we're able to see and experience and measure. Um, and yet uh, I've had uh, deep discussions and disagreements with uh, a notable uh, physicist from Amherst College on the idea of whether science is exploring truth or whether it's exploring a model of reality. And I'm firmly on the side of, I firmly believe that um, we can only build models of reality and that, and that we're unable to get to underlying truths. Now where that, where, that fall, where that brings us in terms of modern day events, that's a whole nother question, which we'll explore later, but um, I, I really like the idea of beliefs as models. 
of, of something happening. Well, give us, I'm the guy driving to work in his car at nine o'clock uh, in, in the morning, half awake, uh, trying to steer through traffic and balance uh, a cup of coffee uh, on, my, uh, on, on my lap um, as well. Uh, go back a little bit and give me some parameters around belief. What, what, uh, what would your definition of belief be? And maybe the Nietzsche quote um, um, captures that. But, uh, but, but um, uh, give us that, uh, give, give me at least those parameters again. You know, I think for me, one of the distinctions perhaps is that belief often can be justified without verification, right? Um, that if, if, you know, we can suggest, for example, uh, and I feel like I'm getting much too much into Grant's territory and he's going to correct me for bad science, but we can verify gravity by, you know, seeing the apple fall from the tree, right? We can verify that there's something that is pulling that thing down to the earth. Uh, again, for the longest time, though, people believed that this was some sort of divine uh, thing going on, right? That, that God was holding everything to the earth. Uh, but there is no way to verify that or to falsify that in some ways, right? That it's simply a belief that begins with, well, I believe in the power of God. I see this thing happening. I don't understand. Therefore, it must be because of the power of God. Uh, where, you know, sort of scientific discoveries uh, that led us to uh, the theory of gravity. And it is interesting when we talk about a theory of gravity, go back to what Graham was suggesting, is that simply a belief, right? Uh, yes. Think about what people talk uh, yeah, about, seeking the unified theory of everything has almost a religious tone to it. It's, it's the perfect example for, because here's why. Um, the apple falls from the tree and originally people will say, well, God must have wanted that apple on the tree. Then Newton comes along and ties together a very simple mathematical formalism. So all based in rationality, all based on observation, tying together the same falling of the apple from the tree as the orbit of the moon around the earth or the or orbit of the earth around the sun. And yet, and then everyone looks at that and goes, oh, great, we finally understand gravity. No, they believed they understood gravity because Einstein comes along 300 years later and says, no, got it all wrong. There is no magical force grabbing the apple and pulling it down to the earth. The apple is following a curve space-time. And of course, everyone, including everyone, I'm sure, driving to work this morning, goes, what curve space-time? You know, how am I supposed to understand that? And that's where we get into these big paradigm shifts where you realize something that you had promoted out of belief into, into your realm of, no, this is how things works, is actually then broken, and you have to go and learn something entirely new in order to re-understand why the apple falls from the tree. And, and that's why I hold on to this idea that everything is belief. I love what it that I you brought up Einstein. Christine, let me, let, <laughs> let, 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 me, um, let me push a little bit uh, um, of, of, of a different direction. And this is aimed at you, Christine. Okay. You're, I think you're, uh, I think this question is in your uh, is in your wheelhouse, um, as, as we might say. Uh, what I'm hearing, if if I'm hearing 
uh, correctly. What I'm hearing is a lot of verification of, yes. of belief. And that's, that's important. Uh, and, and we're going to talk much more about that. But Christine, let me ask uh, about belief in another way. And that is to say, what is belief to me? Why do I care? Sure. One of the things that I think is really important for people to understand is that belief can actually have a lot of cash value in terms of what it makes you do in day-to-day -day life. It can convince you of things. And when it comes to an example like the one that Grant was talking about with Einstein, the idea that there's an authority figure that we're going to follow, and that sometimes these authority figures potentially can be questioned, is really interesting. I mean, if you look at it in the context of theoretical physics and super string theory, we have this idea that the math tells us that these super strings must exist. The math has given us this imperative that we must do things. In that case, we've got math being an authority figure. But you can imagine how for people of different religious persuasions, they're going to be following authority figures too. And that goes all the way back to American pragmatism. Charles Sanders Peirce talks about the different methods of fixing belief. And one of them has to do with authority figures. And that's not his favorite method for fixing belief. He prefers the scientific method as he understood it, which has to do with testing and verification. Is that the kind of thing that you mean? Like, what, what does belief do to you? What is belief for you? Me, what is belief? Let me, let me ask, let me ask it in, in a very, very direct, blunt way. Why do I care? <laughs> Why should you care about what belief Why do is? I care? Why do I care about string theory. <laughs> Why do I care? Uh, I, I know gravity exists. I experience it all the time. But I kind of put something together in my mind that I call belief. And I act on that. Mm -hmm. I, I think relative to that. I, I, I guess where I'm going with it is, uh, as I as I read uh, in the in the opening, belief is kind of a, of of a base frame that I put together, and I act off of that. I I think off of that. I my ethics works off of that. So. That was really behind my question in the sense of, of, um, of why do I care about belief? What does it do for me? What is it? Where is it in my, in my mind? Where does it sit in the hierarchy of reasoning? I think that you're right. The beliefs need to be there as a base for action, but they also have to be able to be revised. They have to be able to be questioned. And there's a lot of people who are nervous about questioning their beliefs. When it comes to issues in politics, there's all sorts of interesting work on the ethics of political frameworks, where people like Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, he does a lot of work in terms of how people will end up treating people from other groups and other political persuasions, because they assume that their belief system is the right one and 
is the only one. People tend to go into absolutism too quickly. People need to have a healthy skepticism about their belief basis. It's very useful for day-to-day -day life, but when it comes to how we actually treat each other and how we set public policies, we have to be able to challenge them to a certain extent. And that's why it's so interesting to compare things like social and political beliefs against scientific beliefs, because depending on how you want to look at it, there's a lot of different beliefs that we have a lot about a lot of different things, and there's different ways to question them. Yeah, I think you hit on something really interesting there, Christine, and I was sort of thinking about this one, but how I was sort of asking this and you were answering it, that, that in some ways I think belief is how we connect ourselves to the world, right? How we make meaning out of that for ourselves, right? And that it's not just sort of making meaning of the world, but making meaning of our place within it. Um, that, that again, you know, you think, for example, someone who has uh, very strong religious beliefs, no matter what that religion might be, sees themselves as part of a larger plan, right? Uh, God's divine purpose or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that that fundamental belief helps them explain the world around them, right? Um, and, and even when it doesn't help them explain it, it gives them a way out of it, right? So you can think, uh, you know, have some classic uh, you know, uh, spiritual sort of question of, well, if God is so good, why do bad things happen? Uh, and there's often the answer of, well, that's all part of God's great plan, right? That it, it assuages uh, that skepticism in some ways that I think you mentioned. It allows for a very strong sense of certainty uh, in which, again, we, we can insert ourselves and, and find meaning for ourselves in the world. I think at the same time that there are the moments when um, science especially comes in and sort of disrupts these things. One of the examples I just think of is, is Darwin, right? You know, the great sort of decentering of man from the universe, as they sort of talked about it, um, that it really shook up the notion that human beings were created as wonderfully unique and different from everything else. And Darwin says, no, 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 if you trace it, you know, if you rewind the, the clock, it all comes out of this ooze that you know emerges from somewhere. But even that has, and I think this goes to something that Grant was sort of saying a few minutes ago, that has a belief to it, right? It's not as if, uh, you know, those uh, who might be more Darwinian inclined say, well, then I believe in nothing, right? They still believe in the theory of evolution as explaining things and, and, and explaining where we are now in that process. So uh, Grant really kind of broke my brain with what we sort of pushed earlier that I, I didn't like to think of it as certain beliefs. I'd like to think those as separate, but that there is there is a certain faith as well in sort of seeing uh, you know the descent of man, as you know Darwin sort of termed it, you know, seeing the different skeletons over time. And while it makes a lot of logical sense to me scientifically that, oh yeah, you can see that, that progression, it does require certain um, beliefs that cannot necessarily always be verified to hold on to that. I think there's a, a set, another whole class of beliefs which are much simpler and more pedestrian, which are the beliefs we have about each other and how, how different people are gonna show up. Right? We, we do, um, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we've been built to be these incredible, I keep using the term modelers, but modelers of other humans. So, you know, we can walk in the door and look at our wife's face, in my case, and, you know, really quickly put on, put together a bunch of assumptions about how her day's gone, how she's going to, uh, uh, you know, receive me, what, 
you know, uh, and, and on and on. I don't want to get myself in trouble with my wife. So I'm going to stop that analogy there. But, uh, but we do that in all aspects of our lives to the point where we, we uh, make assumptions about what the coffee cup's going to feel like when we pick it up. And these are all mental models, but they're all beliefs. And we know they're beliefs because every once in a while we experience surprise. And surprise is when our beliefs, reality, you know, puts a hard stop to our beliefs and say, you know what, that coffee cup you're grabbing isn't room temperature, it's very hot or it's very cold. And we get surprised and then we are forced in some cases to quickly modify our beliefs. And in other cases, we just reject them and uh, you know, ex ex express some denialism and then you know, go on with the same beliefs, but somehow incongruently with what we've experienced or seen or heard. Cause and effect sometimes doesn't work the way that we assume that it will. And definitely when it comes to things like religious beliefs, it's going to be the case that we have to do a lot of ad hoc backtracking to try and make sure that things stay consistent. If you end up looking at the idea of how can an all good, all powerful God let bad things happen, it's, well, we can't understand God's plan. It's our own limitations. It's, it's not anything to do with God or a definition of God. It's something that has to do with our beliefs about ourselves. <laughs> So, yeah, there's all sorts of ways in which we try and fix things. And the human mind is really good at that. If you read Daniel Dennett and take a look at philosophy of mind, there's all sorts of ways in which we can look at a page of text that has all sorts of mistakes in it and not even realize that the mistakes are there because we are fixing things and making sure that things coincide with what we already assumed it was going to say. <laughs> so if I can just jump in again, that um, we're both really good at it and really bad at it. Yeah. And um you know, I'm, I'm going to bring in this concept, which is I've been thinking a lot about lately, uh, a lot about this lately. But the idea that beliefs are physically manifested in our minds, you know, these are real things. They are physical objects in our minds in the same way that, you know, your favorite um, uh, Word document in your computer is a physical uh, object in, in the disk drive in your computer. It doesn't look anything like what, what you experience it uh, when, when you open it up. Uh, and start reading it, but it exists and it's real. And in the same way, beliefs are real in our minds. And uh, sometimes, as Christine said, it's, it's easy to modify them um, in the face of ev uh, conflicting evidence. Sometimes it seems incredibly hard to break them down, whatever that manifestation is in our mind, break it down and then re rebuild. And there's a lot of resistance to it, I find, sometimes. Uh, and it's just difficult. This happens, again, when we talk about paradigm shifts, I'm sure we'll come back to this, but uh, this can be very challenging. Well, and I think that you're right. And I would, I would add on to, like, to go back to sort of what I was saying a minute ago, I think that because if we're going to break down beliefs, right, that have been challenged, because we have built a sense of self around those beliefs, it requires breaking the self down as well, right? Uh, it's not just of, oh, I have to alter my belief about a certain thing. It's I have built the very sense of self that, that I believe that I am. Uh, and that all has to sort of change. And I wonder if that's in some ways really the complication of uh, the real challenge that a lot of people face is not altering a certain belief or a set of beliefs, but being will willing to sort of alter their sense of themselves, right? Uh, to, you know, to utterly decenter oneself is perhaps the most disruptive thing that there can be, uh, which again is why you get people who cling so tenaciously to things that cannot be verified, right? Um, or that cannot, cannot be falsified in some ways. Because again, I think it's that sense of, but that is who I am, right? 
uh, I think, again, sort of religious people who say, I am one in Christ, right? Uh, that, that it is a definition that there is no sense of me without that sense of belief that I am, I am secondary to in some way. Adam, in, in what sense is that your, 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 uh, your phrase, I am, one in, I am one in Christ, which is, is, a, is a religious, obviously right. a, 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 a religious position um, that, that, one, that one takes. In what sense um, is that a, a belief or a uh, way of self-identification or both? And Christine, you 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 might want to jump in on this as well. <clears throat> well, I think what we're kind of leaning towards here is this question of existentialism. Do I exist and shape my essence through the decisions that I make, or do I have this essence that God has given me before I existed? And for some existentialists, it's you know the kind of thing where you have to consider, you know, am I shaping who I am by choosing certain things in my life? And for some folks who, you know, they really want to have that kind of faith where they assume or they want to project that they've never questioned their faith. So the idea of faith is something that is so inherent to them, they feel like it is a part of their essence. It's not something that they chose. It is just inherent to them. And that's a beautiful thing, but it is kind of interesting to to consider some of the more perhaps pluralistic aspects of human experience, once people realize that there are different people who believe differently, who live differently, all of a sudden it gets a little bit more complicated. I know that that's the kind of thing that some people are dealing with when they look at the history of certain organizations like the ACLU. I know sometimes I'll have a student talking about the ACLU's policies and processes and they'll be sort of surprised that the ACLU has been so willing to defend certain groups that may have points of views that are sort of unsavory to many of us. But that's part of the ACLU thing is that it's about pluralism. It's about freedom of expression. And that that's going to be something where it's whatever you're going to be saying, I'll defend your right to say it. And I also defend my own right to point mm -hmm. out what a fool you are too. So it's the kind of thing that, you know, it's, it's very important for the sense of self. And it's a part of how people try and define their essence too. I think that's interesting. And it sort of goes to the point that people are very willing to point out false beliefs in others, but never to acknowledge that their own beliefs may be grounded on something that is unverifiable. I mean, this always cracks me up when you see people of two different religions or even two different sects of a, of a single religion, uh, each, you know, adamantly insistent that they somehow magically know the correct answer to this uh, and how absurd and foolish these other groups are uh, when, when both of those positions are sort of grounded uh, or, or groundless in some ways, perhaps. Um, but again, I think this sort of goes back to that sense of, you know, a belief in a religious system is about more than just a religious system, right? It is not just a singular, hey, this is what I believe, and, you know, everybody else can believe whatever they want. That so much of what, what even becomes perhaps uh, social and political policy, right, sort of emerges out of uh these a priori belief systems, right? Um, and then again, this is where it becomes much more complicated. If it was just sort of, hey, everybody can go believe whatever they want, that's that's great. But that we live in a culture in which we are constantly sort of banging different sets of beliefs up against each other, right? Um, you know, you can even think of terms such as, you know, a belief in what patriotism means, uh, means something very, very different to very, very different groups of people. 
each who are insistent that their interpretation of it is right. Uh, and then we come back almost to sort of language games in some way, right? Well, no, I define belief this way. I define patriotism this way. The way you define it is absurd. And yet these sort of language games have very, very real consequences, right? It's not just beliefs. And how I think this sort of goes to what you were sort of hinting at earlier, our beliefs become physical practices very, very quickly, right? We are not isolated in a cave, just having our own beliefs. We are putting those into practice every single moment of our lives. Well, before before we get uh, even deeper into um, the, uh, the way we use our beliefs and uh, what they do, what our beliefs do to us and for us, uh, how do, and, and Adam, you were, um, you were uh, hinting at this and, and, and um, maybe even more than that uh, a few moments ago, but how are, how are our beliefs developed? Where, where do they come from? Now, Satyana Rayana, uh, in the paper that uh, I began with, said that um, uh, the sources of belief are an environment, events, knowledge, past experiences, what people say to us, and so forth. Say a little bit more than that about, um, about how our beliefs are developed. I would like our scientists to, to take this first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jump I, in, Grant. All right. I, I wish I knew a lot um, about this. Um, but what, what, I can what I can say with some certainty is that uh, we are the sum of our experiences, right? And so um, we know that our brains are constantly rewiring themselves. They're constantly changing. Every time we have an input, which could be a smell, a taste, uh, someone saying something to us, something yelling, someone yelling something across the room, a teacher in a classroom or your parents. And um, all of these inputs, every single one of them changes our brain chemically or at a biological level uh, in some way. And so in that way, we truly are connected to our world around us and we are the sum of everything that's ever happened to us. Now. I'll go back and say again, you know, that our beliefs are physically manifested in our brains. They're real things. And I'm sure one day we'll be even able to measure them um, as, uh, as we get better and better at neuroimaging. Um, but that said, you know, so in some ways it seems to me like the first one to get there has a foothold and the next one to come in has more room to get in there. And then as you start to having uh, challenging beliefs, your brain must have to break down those physical objects that are beliefs and then make room for new ones or make room for modifications. And that takes work. Um, so I don't know, I, I feel I'm trying to lay out a foundation here, but it seems to me that a, a lot of weight has to come on on what you learn first, what the inputs are early on. And then of course, the part about what authority figure as we were talking about before is going to deliver them. So I think of it as both inputs into the brain, and then how much weight are you going to put, put behind that as it's coming in, you know, so that you can put in the, that energy to break down the old beliefs and, and build up new ones. Grant, I think that you're so Grant, right. Me, Christine, let me ask it. Yeah. And, and then, and then come in with, with your comment, because 
uh, Grant made me made me think of, of about this. There there are all these. There are in fact all these inputs, and um, but but belief to me, it seems, uh, has some kind of parameter to it. So how does the parameter of a belief, of all these inputs, how do these inputs uh, get coalesced into a uh, parameter that we would call a belief? Because there is something else that is not a belief that is outside that, that parameter. So, um, I, I know, and the clearest, uh, the clearest, example to me are the development of religious beliefs because religious beliefs are the clearest example I can think of with a parameter and 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 the parameter is this set of thoughts this set of um, of concepts that you hold to and that you and that you base your life on and uh, perhaps we can see that, that with that as an example, that, that those beliefs are a kind of a societal formation. Um, and, and, uh, but all I'm trying to come at is the development of a belief that is discrete and has a parameter um, around it. So okay. uh, Christine. Yeah, I, I really like your question because the whole idea of how we develop these beliefs and how we end up having certain parameters around specific beliefs, that's the kind of thing that I think we can look to religion to try and answer. We can look to advertising to try and answer. There's a way in which having certain repetitions of seeing the same thing over and over again has a lot to do with how we develop certain habits of thinking, which I think then relates to what was talking about in terms of physical places, neural places where these things do seem to exist physically. And I think that it's the kind of thing that you can see if, if you want to do the scholarly thing, the history of the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't important that you were able to read any sacred text. What you needed to be able to do was go into a church and see the artistic representations of Jesus on the cross, of the stations of the cross, be able to engage in certain physical actions of prayer involving things like rosary beads that would create not only a visual representation but also this kind of physical cue for how you are praying physically and what actual genuflecting. The whole idea of the physical body also as a locus of where these beliefs reside. And if you wanted to have a really specific sort of funny example, the way that a lot of people really seem to believe that Jesus must look like Kenny Loggins. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, go ahead and take a look on Google, Jesus Kenny Loggins. There's a lot of people who like the idea that that's what Jesus looks like. Historically, there's very little reason to think that he looked at all like that, but it's a habit that we have. It's something that we feel comfortable with. We've seen it in lots of movies. We saw it growing up. We saw it in books. You know, it's the kind of thing that people like. It's comfortable because it's familiar, and then over time it becomes a habit and a kind of neural connection within the brain. But it's further than that. Let me let me ask Adam. But it, but Christine, it's a little further than that in the sense that it gets defined as a clue as to how you should live your life. Oh yes. A clue as to how you should think about the world. A clue as to how you should think about the universe. A clue as to how you should develop your ethics. 
yep. and your morals relative. So, uh, so it is, um, it is the development of a defined belief that really informs the way you want to live your life. And in fact, in one sense, I don't mean to push this too far, but, but in one sense, um, the belief, and, and we said that um, early on in the reading at the beginning, our beliefs become our reality. And, and this is a very clear example of how the belief becomes the person's reality. So I'm, I'm sorry, um, Adam. I, I, no, no, no. I, I, you know, when Christine was talking, and I think your, your question sort of goes to this as well, it brings back to, to another idea that, that Nietzsche had brought up where he talks about the morality of mores, um, right? That we develop morality, you know, a moral belief system out of the things that we have done a bunch um, and that have perhaps worked, right? Uh, that they have kept, uh, you know, if we think back to sort of early human beings, right? They have kept the tribe alive. They have protected us in some ways. And so they have become something that have become cemented or sedimented perhaps in some ways. But because we have done them for so long, we forget about the actual origins of them. And then we ascribe them to some higher power. Uh, so one of the examples Nietzsche uses is, you know, that, that human beings come up with something uh, and then hide it behind a bush and come back the next day and say, look what the gods have left for us. Uh, because it also gives it some larger authority. How you, you kind of hinted at this uh, notion of authority before, right? So if we think about sort of, you know, a biblical injunction of thou shalt not kill, right? Uh, it's one thing for me to say that to someone who's trying to take my stuff. Um, and they can go, well, nuts to you, I want your stuff. But if we can have the injunction that the Lord God on high said, thou shalt not kill, uh, it carries not only a temporary injunction, well, don't do that because it's bad for me, but a you will pay for this for the rest of eternity, right? That it gives gravity uh, to injunctions, right? And so that, you know, for example, we can think about um, the the incest taboo, perhaps, right? Uh, is there biological reasoning uh, not to have incest? Yes, right? We can look at, uh, you know, sort of what it does to the, the gene pool and all these sort of, right? There's a biological reality to that, but we don't necessarily need that anymore, right? We simply have become sort of ingrained that don't have sex with people in your family, but that's a bad thing, right? Um, and so that there is that sort of sense where I think, and I think Grant was sort of introducing this in some ways, that there are in many ways biological realities um, that again, we learned over time. Yeah, if you have sex with your family members, the offspring can be really negatively impacted that have become so uh, routine in some ways that they have become morals unto themselves, right? And so again, even those uh, you know, even someone like Nietzsche, who uh, you know, the quote that I opened up with is taken from his book, The Antichrist. Nietzsche also very much clearly understood the function that religion has played in the survival of the species over time, right? That it helped us develop a sort of uh, tribal identity, right? That was how we protected ourselves, how we identified with each other, but again, also gave us some uh, quite literal father figure. 
um, who's always kind of watching us. So when we're not able to watch each other uh, to keep us from having sex with our siblings or stealing or killing, that there is the, you know, the big eye in the sky that's kind of always watching that has embodied uh, these, these truths perhaps that we learned over time, um, but now have ascribed to some higher power that, that again is always monitoring us at all times. I think you're right. That does a lot for us in terms of culture. It's also really interesting to consider how different cultures will do that differently. If you look at African communalism, there's all sorts of interesting readings by Kwame Geche about the Akan people and how you don't really need this paternal father figure. What you have instead is the idea of what's good for the community. And what I think is so kind of interesting is that in the European tradition, we've got this way of trying to make a hierarchy out of all of these habits and neural connections that we've made where, you know, if you look at the Pythagorean table of opposites, the the idea that light is better than dark. And then in Westerns in the United States, Western films, that turns into the white hat guy is the good guy, the black hat guy is the bad guy. These habits that we fall into are very good because they do a lot for us as a group culture, but then they can also be very limiting in terms of processing the world in new ways and being more pluralistic. Well, let me ask, um, uh, let me ask a, a, a different kind of question about belief. We, we've been talking about um, how, how belief is developed, and we've been talking about the outside influences that develop our belief, like, uh, like religion and, and advertising and, and, um, and so forth. In terms of constructing our belief system, what do we contribute to the development of our belief system? What do we bring to the building of our belief system internally? And by that, by that I mean, how do our emotions impact the belief systems that we develop? How do our desires or our wishes impact uh, and help define our uh, our belief system. How do um, how do our needs, the, the what we perceive as our needs, uh, how do we use those to define our uh, our belief? And I've now jumped to a belief system, not just beliefs, but um, to uh, to develop our uh, our belief system. Boy, I'm afraid to take a shot at this, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, go, take a shot at this, Grant. <laughs> All right, so I mean, I'm sure that, that there is a long, hundreds of thousands of years evolutionary uh, pressure that shape many of our beliefs now. And, um, you know, the, and I think a lot of our disgust, get, getting back to the example Adam had brought up, um, you know, a, a lot of our disgust reflex is really based on evolutionary pressures from when we were coming in, up in the in the savanna, not that aren't necessarily relevant in the 21st century anymore, and um, and yet they're still inside of us. You know, the idea that you can't eat a dirty bug, uh, otherwise, you know, you might die. Well, no, you're probably not going to die. You might get sick, but we have plenty of uh, medical technology now to to save us from anything we pick up from a dirty bug. Um, but these things hold on, and uh, I would say so. There are uh, things encoded in our DNA that help to shape some of the beliefs we have. But I think far more important are the societal in, uh, impetuses we get 
you know, and this is, I think, where all of religion comes from in the end, is we, we grow up in tribes, and the tribes are reinforcing certain uh, norms and standards that become beliefs, and that we then give to our children and, and pass on. And, and so, in, in, so I think I, there's, le to me, it seems like there's less biologically inside of us than there is just outside influences from the societies we grow up in. Well, let me uh, let me give an example that that will at least help you uh, perhaps see where I'm coming uh, from anyway with the question, uh, really. And um, let me uh, let me uh, come up with uh, a very existential characteristic of human beings, and that is the fear of death. So how does the fear of death help you form your belief system? And one way in which death might uh, really contribute to the formation uh, of, uh, of your belief system is uh, some way of uh, coming up with a method of explaining mortality. The fact that you're not going to live forever, you are here and, and, then you, and then you are gone, which every human being experiences. It's not, it is not a learned experience, uh, it is an experienced experience, if I can be that, uh, that uh, uh, simple. I, I totally about disagree. It. I think it's a oh, learned no, experience. Oh, wait a minute. Let me finish and then you can disagree. <laughs> God forbid okay, go my son would disagree with me, <laughs> and we're not even at the dinner table. But uh, my, my but my point is, uh, Grant, that the fear of mortality helps create a need to satisfy that fear, and even though the society might help us construct that that need system, we still look for some uh, way of satisfying um, that need. And, and the way we come up with satisfying it is a belief in some way. So uh, go ahead, Grant. I'm sorry. No, I, I, all I do is um, I, the story we tell ourselves about what is going to happen after we die seems to me very much rooted in our culture and, our, and the tribe we, we find ourselves in. Um, and so, uh, and, and I think it just speaks to exactly what I was saying before. We, we, we learn all these norms from people around us, including a fear of death. Because it's not obvious to me why should, we should be afraid of it. It may be unfortunate, but it might not be something we need to fear. And so I, I think these these beliefs are, are mostly brought in from the outside world. I don't know, maybe the others could correct oh, me. No, let, Grant, let me come back at you before you pass the potatoes. Say, uh, should Christine and I step out of the room? So the <laughs> no, no, you don't need to. <laughs> I, I guess, I guess uh, the assumption is not that we come up with a way of negating mortality as our need. Perhaps we come up with a way of accepting 
that mortality and our, and our uh, belief system is built around that acceptance. So all I'm saying is that internally, uh, it is the awareness and the fear that drives the need to create some answer to that, uh, that is then expressed as a belief. I think that you're bringing up some really important questions here about death and fear of death that philosophers find really interesting. But for me, I think it's also a bit of a matter of degree. I think that it's very possible to be somebody who is willing to be a risk taker and who enjoys taking risks and who's really not afraid. But then there's also the other extreme of it where you can have someone who's been raised with parents who are very, very careful, very, very neurotic in a way, and have sort of inserted into them this incredible fear of ever getting hurt in any way. And that can be very limiting. So I think that you're right that fear of death or fear of death, the degree to which it's been given to you in your childhood can really affect how you end up living as an adult. That affects your belief system. I don't know that that it's, you know, it's specifically directly related to religion. I think it's also related to things like, how do you behave if you try and take a swimming class? You know, are you willing to jump in the pool or are you not willing to jump in the pool? It's that kind of day-to-day -day life decision that's rooted in that belief system to the degree that you've got it, to the degree it was given to you by family, by culture, et cetera, et cetera. Let me shift just a little bit We've got, um, we've got about, about 10 minutes left. And uh, let, let me ask uh, uh, the question that, uh, that Grant raised uh, in, a, in an earlier discussion uh, that, that uh, I had uh, with him. And that is, why are we so invested in our beliefs? Why, why are, these, are these beliefs so integral? To who, we, to who we define ourselves to be to the extent that we get really angry or we get really upset when our belief systems are challenged. Why, why is that? Again, for me, and I mentioned this earlier, I think it's because it requires um, a total restructuring of a belief system. When one part of it's shaken, the entire system must be rebuilt and therefore the sense of self must be built. Uh, an example that I sort of think of is, is kind of the QAnon phenomenon, right? Where there was this, um, and again, it was a fundamentally religious belief uh, that Trump had come here to save America uh, and that he was gonna be reelected and everything was gonna be okay. And then when that did not happen, um, there was not a collective sense of QAnon believers of, oh, well, I guess we totally got that one wrong. Uh, let's, let's restructure. They had to build new layers of that sort of architecture, right? It was not a question of tearing it down and starting over. It was just sort of how, how do we keep propping that up? Uh, and so that you have the beliefs have to get even sort of more outlandish in that sort of way. Um, and that's when I think beliefs tend to get very, very dangerous, right? When there is a, an immovable uh, belief in it, right? That there is something that simply we will not relent upon at all um, in the light of other information, uh, scientific discovery, whatever it is, um, that this is what becomes really sort of dangerous 
when people cling so tenaciously to a belief that they are willing to sacrifice lives of others and perhaps even themselves in the name of a belief system. Um, but again, when we see uh, that others have sacrificed themselves for it, it also reinforces the belief system, right? They, you know, we, we, if, if it's people who, you know, we agree with, they are martyrs. If it's people we disagree with, they're just kind of morons who happen to die in the process. But we even think about this notion of martyrdom, of dying for something uh, that can simply never be verified, but that reinforces it as well. And again, you know, QAnon is just one example of this. We see this uh, in any number of sort of perspectives. Uh, any sort of fundamentalism, I think, uh, is grounded on that refusal to shake a belief and to the extent that you are not only willing to die for it, but are willing to kill others for it. Yeah, I think that you're right. The way that we end up handling incongruity and anomalies to our belief system really depends a lot on the individual person and on how invested they are in that belief. When it comes to political situations and situations like January 6th, having people try and figure out what was going on by saying, oh, no, it wasn't us. It was them. It was Antifa. It was somebody else. You know, it was Nancy Pelosi's fault. People will say things like this because that's their way of handling the anomaly and trying to preserve their paradigm scheme, if you will. And when it comes to people in the academic world, it's a little bit different maybe. I think that for some of us, we see anomalies as a great opportunity for another publication or something that we can write up <laughs> or something we can deal with. I, it's, it's sort of hard to have people come up in an educational system where they're not being taught how to handle incongruity in a very productive way. <laughs> Asking them to try and handle it in better, more positive ways is a difficult thing. And so we end up holding on to it tenaciously, like you said. But I just want to add to that, that we're all guilty of this in the sense that mm -hmm. we all have these beliefs that about what will lead to the best society or the best outcome for us or the best economic system or the best ruler. You know, if we think back to the Revolutionary War, right, there were massive disagreements amongst Americans yes. or the colonists about whether, you know, which way to go. And that's just fine. They had different belief systems that led them in different directions. And uh, you know what, one out was one out, but people were willing to die for that. And they, they weren't crazy on either side. They, they just believed very differently. Well, I was, uh, I was thinking about um, the sense that our belief, uh, our, our beliefs, one of the reasons that um, we hold to them so uh, tenaciously, and, and I go back to, again, uh, the reading at, uh, at, at our opening in, in which um, the, uh, the writers said that uh, our beliefs become our reality. Well, I think that's probably very accurate. Our beliefs uh, do become the, our reality, at least for the moment. Uh, for the moment, we hold those beliefs. They are, they are uh, our reality. But I think maybe more than that, and, and maybe uh, you could comment on this, I think uh, to a great extent, our beliefs become who we are. And, and that accounts for a lot of the investment. You're, you're not attacking what I believe, you're attacking me. Uh, this is who I am. And I'm gonna defend 
um, who I am. And then uh, it, it takes the ability to step outside oneself and, and look at those beliefs um, uh, in, uh, in, a in a different light. Um, but um, what, it, what is your sense of that as a possible reason for uh, why uh, it's almost a reflex action to uh, defend uh, our beliefs? I think this is exactly what Adam's been saying um, about the beliefs becoming the self, you know, and, and to tie it back to what I was saying before that your beliefs are physically manifested in you. If someone walked up to you and said, you know, I really don't like your appendix, you would, you would have a reaction to that, you know, despite the fact that you don't even need your appendix, you would have a reaction to that. And I think in the same way, people that challenge your beliefs are, are challenging a literal part of you. I, I think, you know, it's an interesting sort of example of this, you know, as, as tattooing has become much more popular across the culture, you know, it used to be sort of uh, bikers and weirdos and, you know, random punk rockers, but it's become more and more common that you see people tattooing their beliefs on their body, right? And, you know, again, you know, on the one hand, perhaps it's just a pretty thing that you like, you, know, you like the looks of it, but very often it is almost this way of making yourself inflexible to change. Nope, I, I have this literally written on my chest, uh, you know, that uh, whatever it is. And then again, this sort of rigidity in some ways, right? And again, it is simply, I think, a new form of tribalism. Um, and again, in, I think in the more recent political moment, that inflexibility has become all the more uh, uh, dangerous in some ways, right? Um, again, we see this at sort of different moments in, in the culture wars, for example. Um, but again, that sort of notion of my belief is so set, I've literally made it indelible on my very body, right? And so again, I think you almost have that sort of sense that if you go up to somebody who has a, a, a you know, QAnon tattoo and you say, uh, well, hey, I think QAnon is sort of bizarre in some ways, you are in some ways calling into question their actual being at this point, right? a very physical being. Um, and so again, it becomes almost this physically threatening uh, sort of thing. And again, I think it's a really dangerous tendency that we're seeing uh, not just in the United States, but we're starting to see sort of spread uh, across the globe. I like your point about tattooing and physical representations, because for me, that points to a lot of the ways in which the decision to be flexible or inflexible really has to be a conscious decision. In the philosophy of happiness, we talk about how being happy is something that has to be a conscious decision. And if you think about tattooing, there's also uh, over the last 20 years or so, there's been more and more people who have decided to get a semicolon tattoo, usually on their wrist, if they've survived a suicide mm. attempt, because it's kind of like they're pointing out how their life has changed. They went through this moment and and they got through it and then their life continued after the semicolon so this idea of having this you know conscious decision to be flexible inflexible to adapt to not adapt i think that that's a part of what we're definitely talking about here well adam christine grant thank you very much for joining me today and for is really an informative and exciting uh, discussion we, we would all like to believe that our beliefs, uh, the beliefs that guide our lives are true and beneficial. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. 
And so I, I raised the question, what are false beliefs? Why do we hold to false beliefs? When do beliefs need to change or at least to be updated? How do beliefs change? In our next program, we'll consider these questions. So thanks again to our guests and thanks to all of you for listening. This is Delmarva today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson.